I sat and I thought for a minute and I said, you know what? I'm a full professor of history at a research one institution. If I can't do it, who can? Welcome back to Drafting the Past, a podcast all about the craft of writing history. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and in this episode, I was thrilled to talk with historian and best-selling novelist, Deborah Harkness. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Dr. Harkness is a historian of science who teaches at the University of Southern California. She published two academic books before publishing the first novel of her All Souls series, A Discovery of Witches, in 2011, and it became a New York Times bestseller. The fourth and most recent book in the series, Times Convert, was published in 2018. I was delighted to have the chance to talk to Deb about the relationship between her work as a historian and as a novelist, the research that goes into her books, and why she sees her fantasy novels as some of her most significant historical work. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I think it started in 10th grade when I did a uh... Wrote, I had to write a short story for my 10th grade English class for Barbara Little, Happer Horsham High School. I wrote a story about a young girl's first day in the new world. The action took place mostly up a tree with her watching. So it was like, you know, it was, it was historical. It was set in the 17th century. It was fictional. I think if I had to put in a pin in it, that would be... That would be sort of the starting point. I also, it was also a traumatic experience because I was late to class one day. I can't remember the reason. And when I opened the door, I heard someone reading my story out loud. And my teacher was reading, hadn't, you know, this was back in the good old days. No permissions granted, asked for, given. She was simply reading this story to the class. I sat down and thought, oh, God, oh, God, no, no, my life is ending. My life is over. That was private. As she reached the end and she slapped it down on my desk, that was the first sign to anyone who had actually written it. And she said, that's how you write a story. So that was the good, the bad, the terrible, the traumatic. <laughs> and, and so from then on, you know, I devoted my writing to academic papers. I went to college at Mount Holyoke. I loved seminar papers. The longer, the better. I wrote a thesis, liked that much longer than a seminar paper, went to graduate school, got my MA at Northwestern, wrote a thesis, really liked that after having some trouble at first figuring out with what a historical argument actually was. I had problems identifying it with two hands and a flashlight. And uh, finally, at the, at the nick of time, did. And then went on to write, you know, my PhD, which became my first book, John Dee's Conversations with Angels. And that was really great. It was two volumes, my dissertation, because I, had cl I was clearly finding my niche in the long format the longer, the better format. So I published that and I wrote articles and checked all the boxes that we check as historians so that our writing meets the tenure standard, all the while juggling teaching, which is, you know, this comes as news to no one in, in higher education. But in case there's anybody listening 
the kind of idea that we sit in an ivory tower and write away on our monograph is not true. You know, we make lunches, we take kids to school, we take our elders to doctor's appointments, we sit in interminable meetings, we teach a full docket of classes, and we write books. So that's an important thing, I think, about my trajectory as a writer, because I have never assumed that what writing involves is to sit in a room in perfect peace and serenity, all the planets aligned, and write. I have to say that at that point in my life, I hated writing. I loved researching, but I felt like I'd satisfied myself about the answer. And I kind of resented having to write it up. Have you ever felt that way? (laughs) Absolutely. You're just like, really? I have to write this down for other people? This was about my intellectual journey and my understanding. And now I have to like jump through this hoop. So having jumped through that hoop, I set out on writing my second academic book, The Jewel House, which was about science in Elizabethan London. And that was important to my trajectory because it basically slapped me right up the side of the head in terms of what I actually knew about Elizabethan England, having written a book on the subject and, you know, gone through extent, many, many years of graduate training. But it was, I was on a very, very steep learning curve, which I think is also a, the next key step in my in my uh, trajectory, because I loved it. I sort of retooled myself from being an intellectual historian of science to a social historian of science. There weren't a lot of role models for that at the time, a few. And I loved, I love and still love research. And so it involved an enormous amount of research in manuscript sources, which I had started out thinking I could just use printed books. It would be faster. It would be easier. I'm a manuscript scholar to the bone. So years later, I finally produced The Jewel House, along with teaching and faculty meetings and living life. And I got promoted to full professor. And I thought, what am I going to do now? And I started writing a book on scientific and domestic practices in the early scientific revolution and how domestic work fueled techniques of science that we associate with the male-dominated scientific revolution. And it just started feeling like, you know, son of jewel house. It, it was not, I was sort of ringing all the same bells just in a slightly later period. And, and I thought, okay, I have to put this aside for a little bit. And I found myself at sixes and sevens in the autumn of 2009, you know, and I wrote a vampire and witch novel because I thought, well, this will be fun. And I thought, I'll learn something. No one will ever read it and go back refreshed and reinvigorated and go back to the book on domestic science in the 17th century. And that didn't happen (laughs) because people did read the book and the book after it and the book after it. I was enormously blessed by the success of the novels. They provided me with a chance to do some of what I think is my best historical work because I could tell readers 
what I felt was true in my bones, based on my experience and knowledge, even if I couldn't prove it by the standards of the historical profession. And so my writing trajectory, you know, started with a blend of history and fiction. And that's where I am again, from 10th grade to the age of 57. And it's just, it's just kind of been a remarkable growth. And now I love writing. Now that I'm writing fiction, it's still hard, but I have a very different relationship to my writing than I did when I was writing scholarly monographs and articles and conference talks. Was The Discovery of Witches the first novel then that you'd ever drafted? It was the first novel I'd ever started. (laughs) Yes. So I, I started it in September. It was very gestational. And nine months later, I had a full draft. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was writing one book, not three. And in my mind, it had three parts. And I thought, well, let's play in the first part with sort of fantasy and in the second part with historical fiction and the third part with science fiction. And I would, you know, because nobody was going to read it. And indeed, when I finished the draft, it was 1,100 pages long (laughs) because I like a long format. I then spent you know, months whittling it down to a manageable size for submission and to a publisher. And then that publisher whittled it down further, which is why you don't need a suitcase to carry it around. What was that transition like from writing history to writing fiction? It came naturally in the first book because I think it was because it was fantasy. So there was a lot of room for the imagination and it felt like flying. It just felt like flying. I can't put it any other way. It was strange because as a historian, when we don't know where to go next, we go back to the sources and look things up. But as a writer of fiction, if I get stuck, I have to make things up. And that was that was a fascinating, challenging, intriguing all of the things, but it was never boring. And it really did just feel like every day I went to my desk and I had no idea what was going to happen. None, none at all. I'd given no advanced talks. I'd not run anything through a lecture filter to see if it made sense. It was, it was just, you know, writing without a net. And after so many years of writing, you know, very craftsman-like pieces for academic promotion and tenure, it was very liberating. Once you decided that maybe other people would see it, did you worry at all about what your colleagues might think or or the reception? Oh, yes. So the first person to sort of be concerned about this was my wife. And she said, well, you're going to publish this under a pseudonym, right? At which point, all of my early modern sensibility exploded all over my wife as a 19th century historian. And I said, I most certainly am not. You know, I'm not going back into that closet. This is ridiculous. Why shouldn't I be able to write what I want to write? And she just sort of went, okay. And when the book sold and it got into the press, I had to tell my colleagues. They also, of course, said, oh, congratulations. 
you published it under another name, right? <laughs> so that was the first thing I had to disabuse everyone of. Um, and the day that I told people, I was teaching a graduate seminar, the intro to his history, historiography, you know, to the study of history, the kind of nuts and bolts survey for first year grad students. And in my seminars, graduate seminars, we always have a 20 minute, 20 minute session after the break, which is, I always call it the confessional, you know, it's where they can ask me questions. I can respond, frankly. It's kind of a little enclosure of safe space where everybody can talk about what's really in their mind. Because I found graduate school to be a very difficult adjustment myself. And I always want to see if I can do anything better. And one of the students had, of course, picked up the press. Now, none of my colleagues had, but the graduate students had found this article online they said, is this you? And I said, well, yes, it is. And one of them just basically said what everyone else had been thinking, but skirting around and just asked, aren't you worried? No one will ever take you seriously again. And that was a profound moment. We all have profound moments in the classroom where our students articulate something that it with such blinding clarity that it advances the whole the whole seminar, the whole experience. The the higher learning takes place, and that was the I, that was the moment for me, because I sat and I thought for a minute, and I said, you know what? I'm a full professor of history at a research one institution. If I can't do it, who can? And would we tell Shakespeare he was a poet, therefore he shouldn't write plays? Would we tell you know any any of the authors, Voltaire, Machiavelli, you know, people who cross genres, would we would we want a world in which they had just stayed in their lane? Imagine what literature would look like if you were only permitted to work in one genre and never never move around. And I so I explained that and I said and and this was this was, you know, two thousand and nine. It was not, we were in the early days of things like public history and, and, and digital humanities. And I said, it's time as historians, we stopped talking to each other and started talking to people who are not in the academy. And that is what I'm doing with this book. That blinding clarity would never have come to me without the honesty and transparency of my graduate students. And once I had said those words out loud, that became that became my mantra. That was my mission statement. And I became increasingly unapologetic and just, you know, I, I thought, the, you know, I say to people, the world's not going to stop spinning because I wrote a novel, even a novel about vampires and witches. Really, it's going to be OK. And it has been and it's been amazing. Well, let me have you talk a little bit about some of these nuts and bolts questions. So when and where do you like to do your writing? Where I like to do my writing is in a room that has a door to it that no one that closes and no one opens it till I reach the end. But I actually write everywhere. I write in the USC Cafe Literati in between classes. I write in the McDonald's drive through lane on a napkin. I write on airplanes. I write on trains. 
because with what's clear to me is that with very few exceptions, I am my best self when I touch my work at least once a day. And so I have very, I set very low bars. I think, okay, you have to touch your work for 30 minutes. Touching your work, work for an academic could be whatever the modern equivalent of the index card is, or reading a draft, or line editing a draft, or entering changes, or contacting someone and asking if they'd read something you've written and check it out. It, it doesn't matter. But you, for me, you know, obviously, when you're in the hospital, you, I was, you know, I'm not writing. Or if I don't, you know, have uh, my computer, you know, my computer actually isn't relevant. But there, there are times when life trumps work. But I get back to that, touch your work for 30 minutes every day, as quickly as I can, because I'm a better human being. I am not angry waiting in checkout lines when I do that. And I try to do it as early in the day as I can, because I know from experience that waiting to do it at 530 before you make dinner at six is not good. <laughs> for at least not for me. Are there tools that you rely on to write? Do you write on the computer or in a notebook? I keep notebooks. This is different than when, you know, when I was an academic writer, I I worked off note cards, good old fashioned index cards, because I like to shuffle them around and reorder them and make new connections. And I just never found working with uh, files to be as, as effective for me because I'm a very visual person and something happens when I see it kind of laid out in a way and can see, oh, wait, I need to do that. It would take me hours on a text to come up with the same thing that I can see immediately. But I don't use index cards in my fiction. Instead, I use notebooks. I have a notebook going all the time and I have notebooks for the next project and the next project and the next project. So if I get an idea, I know where it's going. I'm not writing it on a McDonald's napkin and then losing the napkin or throwing the napkin away. And then I write on the computer itself. Go, I go straight to the computer, which is true for my first book, my, my two academic books and every article I've ever written. You know, I got my first computer in 1985. It was the size of a Singer sewing machine. I learned, you know, my junior year of college, really, how to write straight to computer and have done so ever since. Even for your fiction, you do obviously a ton of research. How do you keep that all organized? Badly at first, because it goes into my first journal and that's just things that I, little tantalizing things I'm following up and it's very inchoate, but I just, I just write it longhand in journals. And usually after about one or two, uh, filling one or two of those journals, so they're like about 200 pages each with longhand and maps and sketches and ideas and music that I'm listening to, I get to a place where I'm ready to start writing. The notebooking phase, you know, those initial notebooks fill up pretty quickly because you have no idea what you're doing. And it's fun, you know, to just, it's, it's like that first day in the archives when you're just like, woohoo, I have a list, but let's paddle around first. And you always learn such amazing things when you do that. But as the story kind of gels and comes together, I start in a new notebook and I distill things from the old notebooks into the new one. And the new one has sections for things like 
key characters and scenes I'm thinking about, worldview pages, you know, all of those sorts of things. I'm just about to run out of that notebook for the project I'm working on now. And so it'll just, I will just go into another notebook that will just be, it'll be just be divided chapter by chapter now that I have a sense of where I'm going. I'm not an outliner. I never have been. I could never understand it. I just don't think that way. Do you outline? I do outline. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm jealous I think, that you don't. No, because I think it's much more efficient and you I have to write myself into a brick wall and then bang my head on it for about three weeks before I think, okay, you have to go back to the beginning and start over with conceptualizing it. And from what I see, outliners don't have to do that because they're seeing something, you know, as a problem emerges. They're like, oh, so I'm very jealous that you're an outliner. I am not. I always feel like a crash test dummy. I mean, I go into the <laughs> wall at full speed. And I ricochet back and forth and I get really stuck. Normally for me, that's about 120 pages into a book. It's pretty reliable. And that's, you know, and then I have to go back to the beginning and I write past that to about maybe 200 and I hit another brick wall and then go back to the beginning. So most of my books have some pretty major conceptual changes from notebook to like the first draft that actually is a, is complete because I've gone down lots of probably useful, but ultimately alleyways that led to a dead end. That makes me curious then to know what your revision process looks like generally. So it, it sounds like you kind of revise as you go. Is that right? I do because this is also true of my academic writing. When I begin a new chapter, I immediately know the flaws in the old one, things I didn't set up right, things that weren't clear, things that I just repeated without advancing the argument. These are all true for a work of fiction, right? It's fund fundamentally, whether you're a, his a historian or a novelist, you're, you're telling a story about the past. And in both cases, you have an argument that you're making. I think there's this thought that like, you know, fiction is argument free. What fun. Not so. You are making a bigger point. There's a bigger overarching claim that you're making in both genres. So for me, revision is an absolutely essential part of writing and must be done consistently through. As I've gotten more experience with this genre, I am better able to write for a few chapters before I feel like I want to go in and line edit, but not always. Usually it's like, I got to do it. The minute it's done, you know, I sleep on it. Next day, red pen comes out. You know, I just did it for a chapter. It was just the pages were barely legible with all the red ink. And, and I'll go through probably four more revisions of that with input from others. So one of the things I think that always makes great good writing is good revising and getting feedback. And again, that's something I happily got used to as an academic. I think maybe some fiction writers find it harder, but we had, you know, you and I have had that kind of structured 
introduction to criticism and how to respond to criticism. And we've developed some thick skin about criticism, all of which stands you in really good stead if you want to be a writer. To dig into the historical research and narrative that goes into Dr. Harkness's novels, I asked her to talk me through the creation of a passage from her most recent book. Here's Dr. Deborah Harkness reading from Chapter 9 of the novel Times Convert. Chapter 9, Crown, April to June, 1775. Marcus juggled the pail of fish between his hands and pushed open the door to Thomas Buckland's Northampton surgery. Buckland was one of the few medical men west of Worcester, and though he was neither the most prosperous nor the best educated, he was by far the safest choice if you wanted to survive a visit to the doctor. The metal bell that hung over the door tinkled brightly, announcing Marcus's arrival. The surgeon's wife was working in the front room, where Buckland's equipment, forceps, teeth pullers, and cauterization irons lay in a gleaming row on a clean towel. Pots of herbs, medicines, and salves were displayed on the shelves. The surgery's windows overlooked Northampton's Main Street so that interested passers-by could witness the pain and suffering going on inside. As Buckland set bones, peered into mouths and ears, drew teeth, and examined aching limbs. Marcus McNeil, what are you doing here? Mercy Buckland looked up from the table where she was putting ointment into a stone crock. I was hoping to trade some fish for a bit of that tisane you gave my mother last month. Marcus held up his pail. Shad, freshly caught at the falls south of Hadley. Does your father know where you are? Mrs. Buckland had witnessed the argument that broke out a few months ago when Obadiah caught him talking with Tom about how to make a salve to heal bruises. After that, his father had forbidden him from going to Northampton for cures. Obadiah insisted that the family see the nearsighted doctor in Hadley instead, who was half as good and twice as expensive, but whose age and tendency to overindulge in spirits made him less likely to interfere in McNeil family business. There's no point in asking, Mercy. Marcus won't answer. He's become a man of few words. Tom Buckland joined his wife, his balding head shining in the spring light. For myself, I miss the boy who couldn't stop talking. Marcus felt Mrs. Buckland's eyes on him as she studied his thin arms, the piece of rope that cinched his breeches into his narrow waist, the hole in the toe of his left shoe, the patches on his blue and white checked shirt, made from coarse cloth his sister patients had woven from the flax grown on their farm. But he didn't want the Buckland's pity. He didn't want anything, except some tisane. Marcus's mother was able to sleep after she had some of Mrs. Buckland's famous concoction. The surgeon's wife had taught him what was in it, valerian and hops and skullcap, but these plants weren't grown in the McNeil family garden. Is there news from Boston, Marcus said, trying to change the subject. The Sons of Liberty are rallying against the Redcoats, Tom replied, peering through his spectacles at the shelves in search of the right herbal mixture. Everyone is fired up thanks to Dr. Warren. Someone passing through Springfield said more trouble is expected, though God hopes it won't be another massacre. I heard the same down at the falls, Marcus replied. It was how news traveled through small towns like these, one piece of gossip at a time. Tom Buckland pressed a packet into his hand. 
for your mother. Thank you, Dr. Buckland, Marcus said, putting his pail on the counter. These are for you. They'll make a fine dinner. No, Marcus, that's too much, Mercy protested. Half of that bucket is more than enough for Thomas and me. You should take the rest home. I've moved the buttons on Thomas's breeches twice this winter. Marcus shook his head, refusing the offer. Thank you, Dr. Buckland. Mrs. Buckland, you keep it. I've got to get home. I chose this passage for two reasons. One practical, because it didn't require a lot of trying to, <laughs> trying to explain the setup. The second is because this passage is just a marvelous example of the amount of historical detail that is packed into your books. I'm curious to know how you balance detail with narrative. As a historian, it must be tempting to include more and more. I always say that historical detail is like tarragon. You have to use it very, very sparingly or it overwhelms everything. So I learned this writing Shadow of Night, the book set in Elizabethan England, which was my patch of ground, right? So it was somewhere around page four of a rapturous description of a table that I thought, my readers don't maybe want to do this. And I asked myself the simple question, if I was describing a modern table, would I take four pages to do it? And the answer was, of course, no. You'd just say the oak table or the long oak table or the short oak table, whatever you might be, but you would certainly not spend four pages. But every bit of information, and again, there was a lot of it that I I didn't know. I'd never seen Elizabethan coins. Therefore, I didn't know their relative sizes. Well, if you're writing a novel, you need to know what the size of of a crown is and what the size of a penny is. And so everything was like, oh my gosh, I'd never studied early modern furniture making before. So I wanted to share everything I learned. And this is a I see this a lot in my students and my graduate students and my colleagues' work and my own academic work. You want to take, you you don't want to miss a single step in your intellectual pilgrimage. You want to take them on that journey with you. They do not want to go any more than any of my (laughs) readers do. And so I just realized that less is more. I'm not a historical reenactor. I am somebody who is driven by historical research into a field. So in the case of that passage from Times Convert, I read things about family structure in the 18th century. I read, you know, all the books and articles. I kind of retooled into an 18th century historian and realized, not for me. But it was, you know, I read primary sources, surgical manuals. I researched Northampton. I researched the medical scene in Northampton. You know, I picked Hadley because it's where my, one, a branch of my family came from. So it was a town I knew pretty well and the vague outlines of it. But, you know, it was a lot of research. Of course, I, you know, I treasured every historical morsel, but you need to sprinkle it lightly through. And I think that's true with a historian in terms of evidence versus argument. You don't want to pile up so many instances in an effort to really prove yourself that nobody can remember what point you're even making with that evidence, right? And so that's always a balancing act. And I think we sadly have to learn it with every project. 
we never really get to that place where we know what to say and what not to say until we've done it and realize it's too much. How do you decide what what details help a reader versus hinder? Well, I like to be evocative. I like my readers to feel like they're right there in the midst of the action. This was also true of my history. It was very character-centered and people-centered. It was not about, you know, ideas, ideas, the tall ideas, dancing. It was about real-life, on-the-ground conditions um, for those ideas. So I, I like that. And so I have to ask myself, what work does this do for me? This historical morsel, this tidbit. Does it advance my character's internal emotional growth? The you know the character arc in the book does it serve the plot arc in some some sense, or is it just set dressing where you're sort of you know you're just making all the you're building the surround that will let those other two arcs really stand out, and you know you have to be you have to be very economical if it's just set dressing, or you have to find a way to make whatever you want to include desperately do actual work. Again, I think that's, that's, this is something that's going to resonate with any historian, right? You find all kinds of weird stuff in the archives and you're desperate to share them. And, you know, you got to be able to pick it, you know, yeah, it's, that's terrific, but does it actually do anything to further the narrative along? And you have to ask the same question as a, a fiction writer. For a passage like this one, what what kind of research goes into it? You mentioned reading books and articles. Is that is that the bulk books, of it? Books, articles, visiting house museums, looking at a lot of online pictures of actual items, often choosing one of those to describe. It's interesting. They say you can't actually make up a face. You're always drawing on features from somebody that you know or have seen or whatever. I think the same thing can be said for tangible objects that appear in fiction. My fiction has a lot of objects in it. And those objects do do work. I find the real thing much, it just relaxes me as a historian, right? To not be like inventing something and then realize, oh, they didn't use stretcher bars then, or they, you know, oak wasn't available or whatever it might be. So I tend to be, do very specific searches in museum catalogs to find items from exactly the right place and exactly the right time. Because I, I feel like I owe it to my readers, just as I owe it to my students to be as accurate and grounded in the information I share with them as possible. I don't want to conjecture. If it's historically knowable, be it in my classroom, my academic writing, or my fiction, then that's what I'm going to rely on. Lots of object-based work. A lot of times I can't get a sense of scale, like with the coins. So, you know, I go to a coin dealer and I say, you know, show me your 18th century Massachusetts coins, please. Or what did an 18th century forcep look like? You know, off to the Welcome Museum or or similar in, to to check that out. So I would encourage historians to do that as much as possible with their academic work. There's a real difference from looking at an image of something and actually picking it up or seeing it in three dimensions. It changes that you, know, you think, wow, that's bigger than I thought or smaller or 
wait a minute, what's that thing over there do? And it's it can just be invaluable to your understanding of what was really going on in the, in the, in the historical narrative that you're sharing. I, I was struck as I was revisiting your books this week that, okay, so we have passages like this one, which is just set in the past. We have passages in which there are, say, historians describing a past that they have studied quite well. There are uh, people in the contemporary moment, but who have also lived through the past, <laughs> talking about the past. And then you have contemporary characters traveling to the past. Is it challenging to juggle how all those different perspectives see the things <laughs> that you've researched? Yes, but it's a challenge I love. And I again, I think it's very similar to the way I operated as a historian. So I always felt like trips to the archives were traveling back to the past. I was I was seeing the raw stuff of history or going to a museum. And I feel like the historian talking about a period that they've studied is me in lecture. And and the setting, putting some when something's actually in the past, that's the fun part because that's where I really feel like I'm doing the best historical work of my life because I get to go from objects and texts to, you know, a, a multi-perspective, intricate world that I've created based on the best historian's work I could read and the most primary sources I could get my hands on, including objects and images. And I couldn't write that article as a scholar. I can write it as a novelist. I love the challenge. And it's just, again, part of that multifaceted life we experience if we are historians working in the academy. So you teach students at the University of Southern California. And I know because you have been very kindly supportive of this podcast that you talk about writing with them. How has your work as a writer impacted the way you teach your students? First of all, thank you for doing the podcast because that's part of their assignments is to listen to the podcast, which is a wonderful, um, I've been uh, very influenced by Kate Denial's Pedagogy of Kindness and bringing more empathy and more variety into the classroom in terms of readings and assignments and papers and exams. And so I love to be able to say, you don't have any reading this week. You have to listen to this podcast. In terms of the writing itself, I think it's made me a better critic. I tended to line edit a lot without really being able to sort of read a paper and go in and, and locate where the problem was and what the possible solution might be, unless I line edited, which I think can often be very overwhelming for a student and a writer, right? There are times when you want line editing and there's time when you just, you want notes. You want somebody to say, I didn't find this part of the argument persuasive. Because that just tells you what you have to work on. You don't need somebody to dissect your prose at that stage because, you know, that comes later. It, it makes me appreciate as well that they're at a different place in their journey as historians and writers than I am. And that I need to meet them there and help them take the next step, not just set this bar and be, say, clear it 
And, you know, those who clear it get A's and those who bash into the pole get B's and those who fall down get, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's not effective. So my writing with my, the students and my, my interactions with those students has become much more individual, much more targeted, much more about solving one problem at a time, rather than saying, work on these five things, because it's, it's hard. It's not what we're asking them to do is not easy. It is not natural to them. And many of them are never going to go on to do academic history. So we need to be able to ask them to write and produce analysis in alternative forms that they will very likely be using in the future, as well as the academic form. So it goes back to that idea. As historians, we should be able to work in multiple genres, tweets, blog posts, op-ed pieces, scholarly monographs, conference papers, articles, lectures. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And that's what we should be teaching our students, not just how to write a five-page argumentative essay. That's important, but it's not the only thing that's important. So that's all changed for me since 2011. So the past decade, I've been slowly but surely chipping away at how I thought how history had to be taught to undergraduates and graduate students to the way that I think will serve them best. What influential writing advice have you gotten? To put your butt in a chair and write that rearranging your desk, making a snack, checking your email is not writing. It's preparing to write. So is a trip to Staples to buy a supplies. You know, I could spend an afternoon in Staples and say, I did my writing today. No, you prepared for it, but you didn't actually touch your work. That that idea that uh, a lot of the procrastination and delaying tactics we use does not qualify as writing and being a, a good cop. You have to go to Staples, but that you also have to do something more to further it along. And I think I've just been, you know, I'm, I always marvel at very productive writers. I'm not, I'm not fast in novel terms. I'm not fast in scholarly terms. I'm a slow burn kind of person. I'm a perfectionist. So the most advice I've ever got, you know, that I've gotten that I still can't actually take, although I'm trying, I'm a work in progress, is to let go of things before you think they're ready and get the, let some air into them, get a perspective on them from someone else. The novelist Neil Gaiman, is, it has some of the best writing advice ever, which is to accept that all criticism is 100% right and that all the solutions people offer are 100% wrong. When, when somebody criticizes something, you think, oh, okay, there's a problem there and I need to investigate it. They're, they're like, I just need this here. That's not really going to solve the problem because only you know the source material, the argument, in my case, the characters, the long epic scope of what I'm trying to do. Um, so people's solutions are usually not super valuable, but their criticism 
is always important and always has to be taken seriously because it flags a flaw in your work. When there's nothing that stops the reader, there's nothing to criticize. And so that's probably that, that idea that, you know, don't be such a perfectionist. Let it go. It'll come back to you. You'll, you'll fix it then. Is, is, it's the only sustainable model for writing, I think. Although I am still a perfectionist. So, do you have a writing community you rely on? I have a wonderful group of beta readers that I call the Mystical Sisters. And they read everything as I'm writing, sort of like my own private coven. I have writing people who help me stay accountable. So I have a a writing group with two other authors that's very much about accountability, creative ways to think about how to unstick yourself when you're stuck. And I've also got a writing partner partner who's just works in a very similar genre. And I call them writing partners. We're not co-writing things. It's my writing companion, I guess. But we're in a very similar place in our in our lives, in our writing careers, and we write a similar kind of book, albeit for different audiences. We just are so in sync. We understand the problems of high concept fantasy and sort of gothic in ways that are, you know, you have to be in the trenches to really understand. So I think, you know, those are like, you know, people who are really close to you in the field versus someone in a totally different field. You want both perspectives. So those are those are my sort of writing communities. And then I've got, you know, in fiction, you go through a great deal more in the editorial process than you do as an academic. So I have multiple people reading, commenting, criticizing from a developmental editor to a, uh, a submission editor to my agent to my editor at the press. There's a lot of people in that kitchen as you really start writing and start producing draft and then go through revisions apart from the revisions you've already done. So that's my sort of, I consider them part of the writing community because they're about how to make the best book that can possibly go out into the world. Are there other writers that you look to for inspiration or or things you've read recently? You know, it's so funny. I, I'm a professional nonfiction reader, like all of us are. And so I don't read much fiction. And so whenever somebody asks me to like recommend the last novel I wrote, I read, I'm like, uh, I think it was The Witching Hour by Anne Rice when I was a graduate student. You know, I just, I just don't, <laughs> I, I don't have time. I'm always, because I like a steep learning curve. I, I try to keep very current with my own field. And because of the nature of the books I write, I have to delve deep into areas I've never explored before. Every day I'm reading historical work and historical work. And I go to a colleague or a friend and say, all right, you know, Karen Wolf, you are an 18th century historian. She was my go-to person for, you know, what should I read? in 18th century history to get this right. Or if I ran into a problem, I'd say, hey, who's got the best stuff on childbirth these days in the, you know, in the 18th century? 
So I rely on the expertise of others to guide me to those books. And they're, you know, as always, when you read a great work of history, it transforms the way you think about the past. And again, as a as a novelist, I'm not as concerned with which button would have fit on that waistcoat as I am about what really smart historians are saying about the period more broadly, the arguments they're making, because that's how you write a passage like the one you wrote. It's not about historic detail. It's actually about the arguments that other historians have so carefully and generously made for you. <laughs> that's where the that's where the real fun begins. Before I let you go, can I can I ask you what you're working on now? Yes, but I can't tell you. <laughs> I am work I am working on a novel. I am working on the next book in the All Souls series. It's going very well. Now I have to knock on wood to to keep keep any evil evil uh, influences at bay. I took a nice little break after Times Convert. It was exhausting to write a, a sort of really historically based book in a period I didn't know as well. And so I'm ready to go now with the next next entry into the saga and, you know, hope to be able to have concrete news like a title and what it's about to share when I get the green light from higher powers that it's okay to go forward. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Deb Harkness, thank you so much for joining me on Drafting the Past. This has really been fun. We, as historians... We should do this more often. Absolutely. Talk about our process. That's a good thing. Thank you again to Dr. Deborah Harkness for joining me on Drafting the Past. And thanks to you for listening. As always, you can find show notes and links to the books that we talked about in this episode at draftingthepast.com. While you're there, you can also leave me a voicemail telling me about some of the best writing advice you've ever received. I may use your message in an upcoming bonus episode of Drafting the Past. In the meantime, remember, friends don't let friends write boring history.